Hi, I'm Gabby Herculano. And I'm Shella Lika. And this is Climate Talk with Gabby and Shella, a weekly podcast in which we talk to an array of fascinating people from all corners of the business and financial world about their solutions for creating a decarbonized planet and a climate habitable for all. Come join us as we push toward a greener future. Today, we're going to be talking to Steve Levine, who is the author of The Oil and the Glory and Putin's Labyrinth, and my favorite, The Powerhouse. He writes The Electric, a new publication on batteries, electric vehicles, and geopolitics. He's also a senior fellow at the Foresight Strategy and Risk Initiative at the Atlantic Council, and he's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service, my alma mater. He was previously a foreign correspondent and journalist for the Wall Street Journal and New York Times. We'll be talking to Steve about his views about batteries, how much demand there will be for stationary and electric vehicle um, batteries, and if we have enough minerals to supply all of those batteries. Can't wait to talk to him. Let's bring him on. Steve, thank you so much for making the time. We are extremely excited to have you here. We thought we could start with with a question, a more personal, if if you will. You're a journalist and you, you used to do a lot of research and you wrote a couple of books on oil and on Russia. And then you published The Powerhouse, which is a book that our entire team um, loves in 2015. Why batteries and why that career trajectory? Can you share more with us? Yeah, thanks. First, thank you very much for including me in your podcast. Uh, really excited about what we're going to talk about today. So I'm still a journalist and I'm really doing the same thing. You know, I've done geopolitics and whatever it is I'm working on, how does it impact the power uh, and, and influence of nations? And the the first book was on oil, oil in the former Soviet Union and how uh, the United States and Russia struggled over who was going to control that oil. Why? That was a projection of, of power, of economic and political power. And if you just swap batteries into that equation, batteries and geopolitics, it's a very interesting lens into um, uh, the period we're just beginning actually. I mean, we've gone far enough that we can actually see, we can start to see who is going to have economic influence and project that influence and how, and you can see the other players seeing that. Of course, I'm talking about China, but you can see the other players getting a little bit nervous and starting to put down facts on the ground to counter that, that power. That's really fascinating. And I know you wrote recently in the New York Times um, an opinion piece exactly about that struggle between the U.S. and China and how China does already dominate the supply chain and the U.S. even with its battery plants bringing up may be already a bit too late and the impact that will have. So could you talk a little bit more about that, about your views there, and then perhaps also touch on these other players that you're mentioning or who are starting to put their roots down? Right. So this goes back 10 years and it was during the financial crash and China and the US and some other countries, South Korea and Japan, a few players in Europe as well, decided they were going to try to uh, glom 
onto and capture a piece of what then was just the, the advent or the aspiration of electric car future, of battery future. Fast forward just a few years, everyone lost interest except Elon Musk and China. And both of them st stuck with the, the game all the way through the teens, the last decade, and now it's paying off. So China decided it was going to capture, it was going to own the whole supply chain from the raw ore, the mining of the raw ore, all the way to the creation of cells, battery packs, and ultimately electric cars. And Elon Musk too, the same, the same sort of trajectory. But what that means is that Chinese companies have possession of most of the world's battery metals, the, the cobalt, nickel, lithium, manganese, uh, aluminum, and, and the refining of these uh, metals into the final form, going into the cathode powders and ultimately in, into the cells. And uh, everyone else who's in this game is buying their battery metal chemicals from Chinese companies. And it's two things. One is for the U.S. and China, China and the U.S. are primary technological rivals. And so you have U.S. companies relying on their country's primary technological rival to beat that rival. And so you can see that that uh, isn't as kind of awkward. And uh, the second thing, it's a flashpoint. Remember the Asian part of World War II started because the U.S. cut off oil to Japan. Japan responded by bombing Pearl Harbor, the Philippines, basically everywhere in Asia. And, and if China, for whatever reason, right, for, for a political reason or just for an economic reason, it just had an energy crisis and it stopped mining certain metals battery metals that could be misperceived right, by, by other countries at that, at that time, especially if it's an extended cutoff. So this is a, a future flashpoint. It's similar to Taiwan as a flashpoint, South China Sea as a flashpoint. And therefore, this is something that it's a geostrategic imperative that not just the United States, but Europe too. Uh, work to diversify the battery metals supply chain. And, and uh, j just to close this out, Europe, is the, the furthest behind is the U.S. Europe it ha has been and is European Union declared what I'm talking about, a strategic Im imperative. It has been since 2017 and on an accelerated basis for the last year or two has been putting money down backing the efforts of especially Germany, but also Sweden and Norway to put down battery plants and get some of the processing going there too. Can I just follow up quickly with that? Um, just because I think it's fascinating when you talk about the geopolitical ramifications and sort of the parallels with, with the past. But if when you're talking about batteries and sort of the immense work that has already gone into getting China to where it is now, you know, let's say even today, if the U.S. starts pouring the amount of money that would be required, you know, what would the options be? I know you talk about the U.S. being ahead in innovation, for instance, 
But with the materials that the primary sources of supply, especially with cobalt being dominated by China, I know that's reducing um, in terms of how much it, it comprises of the chemistry with kind of recent innovations. But, you know, even if the U.S. was full heartedly behind the processing and started focusing on that, is it too late? It's too late for the almost too late for the 2020s. So the 2020s are basically lost. So just presume that the, the scenario you just laid out happens. Everyone uh, gets on board in the United States and, and Europe and starts going 90 miles an hour to put down the processing plants. Those won't come online until, until the end of the decade, toward, toward the end of the decade. So you start doing that now so that you're, you're, you're okay in the 2030s. And the, the other thing to know is that, is that the, the winners in the battery race and the EV race are being decided now by investments and, and products that, that are being decided, developed, and put into the commercial channels now. And these will only come on the market in the mid-decade, 2023 to 2025. But, uh, it, you know, for those who are waiting, like you're all going to be losers, right? If, you, if you're still waiting, then the folks who are making their final decisions and doing their final little tweaks and closing the screws and hammering the last nails, those are the winners in this decade. But Steve, is this mismatch, are we exaggerating it? Because China on the solar panels, for example, produces 70%, but 50% of all the installed capacity is in Asia. Uh, similar to the battery produces about 70%, but over half of the baths on the planet are in China. So they're producing, but they're also consuming, which means that the rest of the world has solutions in place. And then an additional question is, are we then talking about a deglobalization of these two very important and relevant technologies? When you say deglobalization, do, do you mean regionalization of, of the yeah, supply chain? Exactly, yeah. because in the last 30 years, manufacturing has been pretty much dominated by China. Yeah. So first, the part about China producing for its own market. Yes, that's right. But it also produces that whole battery chain for the rest of the market. When, when Ford, GM, BMW, Volkswagen, when, when they are making their plans, announcing these gigafactories that are going up, you know, 240 gigawatts, you know, VW, 140 uh, Ford and so on. Who are they thinking about where, where that material is coming from? It's all China. Did they ask China? Are, are you going to provide the, these metals? The, the thing we haven't talked about is the shortage of, of metals. You know, these very uh, ambitious plans for how many electric cars are going to be sold in the mid-decade and toward the end of the decade, there are going to be millions and perhaps tens of millions of EVs with no battery. There's simply... There aren't, uh, on current projections, right? If the, the current projections of, uh, of the demand for NMC, NCA, LMO, all, all of the nickel-based batteries, uh, those projections do not match up with coming supply. My own thinking is that, is, is, is that because of that, we get a massive shift in the kinds of metals still reliant on China 
China, we, we get a massive shift to LFP. People talk about a shift to LFP, but what they're talking about, look at all of the projections from BNEF, from McKinsey, from everyone. It's around one third, that one, one third of the market, one third of the uh, electric car market is equipped with batteries, LFP batteries. How do you look at the supply that's coming in and how the market, if it goes forward the way it's projected and there's a mainstream market created, mainstream is going to be two thirds of the market and people buying premium luxury car is going to be a, a sliver just like it is with combustion. So therefore you get really two thirds of the market is going to be LFP also twinned with, with next generation anodes in my view, because you need, you know, to get people to go into these cars, to buy these cars, ordinary people, they want range, right? They're, and and it, it's not that they're going to use this range. That's not, the question is, do they even look seriously at the car? Will they go into the showroom even to look at it? And, it, and they're looking at uh, projections that the cars go 150 miles or even two, 200. I personally think 300 miles is, is that point where people say, okay, well, I'll take a look. And they're, they're, then if you don't have that, they're just not going to go into the showroom. They're not even going to look at the car. And, and it's the same thing with fast charging. They, they have to know that they can charge at a, a, you know, a relatively fast timing. So economic electric vehicles by 2030 with a 400 mile range, do you think that that is not doable? You mean, you mean average range, right? Average range and at an economic price. So way below internal combustion engines. Yeah. I don't think that's how it's going to happen. 400 is a lot. Well, for, first, if, if things happen the way that, that I, that, that I've just laid out, if you're going LFP with lithium metal, LFP with silicon, then you can get 300, you can get maybe 320. Look at the, the standard for this. Look at BYD. BYD, in my view, is producing the most revolutionary battery of anyone. And it's using LFP in all of its vehicles, including the big SUV. So this whole thing that LFP is only for for cheap uh, little city cars. No, LFP can be all the way along, all the way up the chain, and it will be. And it, it especially will be because they're going to put in these high capacity anodes. And the other thing that I think is going to ha happen, I'm, I'm sure you guys have paid attention to this really interesting turn of some of the new cathode makers making double these hybrid ca cathodes, LFP with, uh, well, basically a double cathode, right? An LFP and then manganese lead, like spinel in the same cathode. So therefore you get that, you know, both of them are cheap, manganese and, uh, and um, iron, but also you get that manganese energy lift. So if you've got hybrid cathode, hybrid battery, right? With these next generation anodes, you can get 300, 320 and a low price. And, and I think you've got your market. And what are the implications? So if 
the world if Europe and the U.S. were to adopt that approach, which makes sense? What are the implications in terms of the market for that kind of product in the next, let's say, five years? Yeah, it is companies that are going to adopt this approach, right? This is what's going to happen. Herbert Deese, the, the, the chairman of VW, the CEO of, uh, uh, chairman of VW, he's totally panicked about Elon Musk, right? About, you know, uh, Giga Berlin. How am I going to match him? How am I going to beat Elon? And he's already laid out on, uh, power day, VW power day last year, their roadmap of getting down to $62 per kilowatt hour and, and already has discussed going to LFP and manganese. And what, what I'm saying is that that shift is going to be much more dramatic than people are talking about. Like, I, I think people are talking about it, but they don't get it. They're not looking at the numbers. It's, it's so clear. I mean, across the board analysts, they're talking about companies putting their toe in the water. No, it's not going to be toe in the water. Everyone is going swimming. And, 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 and there is going to be this dramatic thing to LFP and manganese and these hybrid batteries. And the outcome of this is that you do get, you know, uh, a, a much better chance of a 2020s that people expected in the beginning of the year. And what am I, I'm talking about that in, 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 in the mid decade around 2025, that you get the, the beginning of a mainstream market. All of those dozens of electric cars that all of the companies have announced that, that they're launching in 2024, 2025, 2026, that those actually happen, right? that, that they have batteries in them and they actually cost a mainstream price and ordinary people like your mom, she, uh, you know, said, Hey, okay, I'll take a look. I'll take a look at that. I mean, it's, it's not just the market of people who want to feel good and make a statement that's it's a market, but it's a little a narrow market. You want to get people who, who don't care, so, who they care, but they're not going to buy a car because of that. You want an agnostic person to look at these vehicles and buy them because they like them and they're the right price. Steve, on that price, um, you were mentioning that you think the, the disruption that we have observed in the supply chain to a certain extent because of COVID and this increase in commodity prices is pushing forward that point of parity between internal combustion engine and electric vehicles. And, and that's very, is very harmful. Yes. Are you speaking in the, in the uh, framework of climate? Of, of, of climate change, of, uh, of adopting and scaling a, um, a solution that has an impact. We have calculated that and we think that passenger vehicles could be about one gigaton of CO2 that gets avoided, not emitting in the first place is the expression that we use between now and 2030. But again, we do have a few things that need to um, need to happen between now and then. One of them, of course, is us reaching 50 million of BAVs being sold in 2030, of which 20 we believe will be from Tesla alone. But of course, that means that we need the incumbent uh, players to make. So there's a lot of, of things that need to happen for that um, potential avoided emissions, which is something that from a climate change perspective, we care a great deal to materialize. Right. So for the survival of these companies, right, they want to survive. 
the future of the battery companies and for those who are, um, who are trying to keep the temperature rise to, to two degrees. I know one, 1 1.5 degrees gets tossed out there. That's not true. That's not going to happen, but, but, but you could get two, you could get two degrees. That doesn't happen if what we're currently watching just gets pushed forward without any change. And, and especially Europe, Europe has declared, I think 2035, the last year that new combustion vehicles will be sold. This has to do with the, you know, the climate policy and is it Paris, Paris and I, I think London have adopted an, an entirely d different year for when combustion vehicles will be allowed in. So these steps are being made, but th those things can't happen. In other words, they're not going to get people to buy these vehicles if they cost too much, if they cost double what, what they can afford. And so the, the kind of switcheroo that I'm talking about in battery metals, that's how that can happen. And then the shortage, you're only talking about one metal instead of four, it's lithium. So you've, you've still got a big shortage of lithium and a lot of work is going to have to be done to boost global su supply and also refining capacity, but it's much different from, from having nickel, cobalt, aluminum, manganese shortages too. I think that's fascinating. And also going back, I guess, to your earlier comments on the geopolitical aspects of this. I know lithium, a big part of it comes from Australia and perhaps other places too. But so what do you see as sort of the consequences? Um, you mentioned BYD as well as the winners of of this dramatic uptake in, in LFP. All right. Okay. So I I, I kind of flicked at, at this, but it won't surprise anyone that the dominant actor in LFP and iron is China. So China makes virtually all of the LFP on the planet. And so you're still in the position of Europe and the United States having to uh, invest in and put down factories that process lithium and iron and, and phosphate into the final cathode powders. The work still has to be done. I've done, you know, quite a bit of questioning. I'd be interested if you guys have a, a different perception. I'm, I, I'm not getting that much is happening in LFP. I mean, in Europe and the United States, I'm, I'm not hearing that of plans to put down the, these kinds. There's a little bit here, a little bit there. And the people who I hear these little bit are like marginal actors, people you've never heard of before, like, you know, Joe decides he's going to build an LFP plant and raise money on the internet, right? And not big, big players. So this is something that is very serious and we're going to have to see investment in this. And I think that the people who do that are going to be winners. So that should be the next investment. That's your third investment fund. Steve, we have not even talked about stationary needs, right? If we are to solve intermittence and the grid is to become predominantly renewable, we need even more batteries. We've done our own research and a little bit of number crunching and our figure is 5,750 gigawatt hours by 2030, 30% of that being stationary and 70% being what is needed for the electric vehicles. So how are we to clean our grid and having to go right from current levels to the figures that are about a hundred times bigger 
That's a yeah, huge challenge. Yeah. Is that a, a hundred? I saw an estimate that we're at one, we're at one terawatt. Is, well, is, that, is that, are, that exaggerated? I think that's exaggerated, grossly exaggerated. Right. Yeah. That's, that's very, very hard. And again, what metals are you going to use? What's the technology that you're going to use to get there? I don't know what the answer to that is. Your question is, are we going to get to 5.7 terawatt hours and 40% is your, is your estimate, right? That's the stationary? 30% stationary, 70%. Yeah. yeah and that we are at about half. Yeah. I, I admittedly almost look exclusively at EVs and not at the stationary space just uh, extrapolating about how much the industry, the battery industry has to scale up to get to the four terawatt hours that's necessary for the EVs. And now you're adding uh, 1.7 to that. It's a big thing. And again, you know, there needs to be a very hard look at the details of that and what technology gets you there and, and those decisions. If you agree with that, you know, with, with the conclusion, you know, that I've got that the, that the decisions made now are what's going to happen at the end of the decade, it's not something you can wait for, then, you know, what, right now, what are the metals that get you in, in 2030 to, to that figure? How do you scale up and the investment, uh, necessary for that? It's a pretty steep ride. I do want to say it's in the same, um, subject area, but a slight change that, uh, a, a slight shift that, that I am, uh, very interested. I become very interested in the vehicle to grid technology, but I, I used to think that this was one of those things of, you know, very clever people cleverizing, uh, Hey, wouldn't it be cool, you know, if we hooked everyone up to the grid and then we wouldn't need this power plant and, and so on, but here in the United States, there, there are several cases of companies, uh, like Nuve is, is one right here down the street from where I live that has signed a deal with a local school district. And what's interesting about it is they, not only that they have, well, Nuve, its co-founder is the inventor of V to G. So that, that, that's great. Yeah. And so he's an, he's a very interesting character, but they've got, they've got the financing. That's how that's going to ha happen is that, is that V, V to G companies that are twinned with finance, right? So you can walk into, um, a bus, any bus, uh, fleet, school bus fleet, city bus fleet and say, Hey, you know, you know, you really ought to switch over to electric. It looks like it costs a lot. But the, you know, but lifetime, it doesn't. And incidentally, we have this financing. It won't cost you anything more. It's pretty easy to make that decision. And then suddenly, you know, the, the grid, the expansion of the grid that's necessary for the electric cars and, and so on, uh, don't have to be expanded, right? You don't need the peakers because the, right? Because of the, the V2G takes care of that. That's a trend that's just starting here in the States. Uh, but I think like that is a few, that's happening. That's going to happen more like at scale, starting with fleets. 
we could not agree more. Again, there's an element of California here, right? There's there's that element that California is pushing with uh, legislation um, um, 67 or 676 uh, is the number of the bill that that states that vehicles to grid needs to be part of the solution for the Californian grid. And again, this is not a concept. This is in place and we have abundant evidence of that. And we've been doing a lot of research on that. And I think that's incumbent players, Volkswagen and GM, and of course, Ford with the F-150 that is installed by some, uh, by Sunrun. Um, it's evidence that this, again, is not a concept, like you're saying, it's already in place. So we subscribe to that. We'd like to close the episodes talking about a bit of that vision for the future, 2030. You have already um, shared with us a lot of um, your insights, but tell us a little bit more on that V2G. And as we're there, it's causing VPP, which is the same use of aggregating existing behind the meter solutions, but on this case, stationary. Is the world going to embrace all of these solutions by 2030? We talked about the, the, the challenge of the minerals, but what is your view? And, and then on that point, what is, you know, your next book going to be about? Okay. All right. So we're in 2030. So we're in 2030 right now. V to G is a standard technology used by fleets around the world in Europe and the United States and maybe China. The price, the average price of batteries has come down. Uh, $60 average, you've mentioned to me 50. I hadn't thought about that. I suppose it, it, it could, especially if you're thinking at the pack level, right? Because a lot of these, we keep thinking at the cell level, cell level does not matter, right? And again, looking at the Chinese BYD and CATL. Uh, so, okay, but let's just say it's 60. So if it's 60, uh, uh, using these kinds of metals that are ample, and I, I say, if I don't mean if, I mean that that's what it is, right? In 2030, we are in an iron economy, mainly with some manganese. Manganese, remember those cathodes don't exist yet, right? We're talking about, everyone's talking about them. No one has figured out yet how to actually use manganese in it, right? It's still dissolving into the electrolyte. And so they need to figure that out. I think we're still, there's serious tension between China, the United States and Europe over the battery supply chain. China is still by far the dominant player in these metals. There, maybe there, there even have been a couple of hiccups during the decade, right? Where it's become very, very clear now to the West, how reliant it is in the same way that the, that we've been re reliant the last four decades on. OPEC, exactly the same, the same thing. And maybe that's a wake up call in 2030. I, I don't think like as much as I'm shouting about this and Simon Moore's over at Benchmark shouts about this too. Uh, I don't think the US and Europe really, they kind of, uh, are dabbling in the supply chain, but somehow they think, you know, that because they're building gigafactories, then the supply folks will just show up. That isn't how it's going to happen. It isn't how it happened in China. And you've got to have a policy and you've got to create the ecosystem in which that kind of industry arises. So we're still, we're still in 2030, 
in this awkward position of relying on our greatest technological rival for, for our survival. A couple of big companies have vanished. A couple of the big auto companies have merged with each other. There's been consolidation. And uh, I don't know who, the, who, who this is anyone's guess, but you're looking at them now. When you look at 2030, it's, that's not what, it's not going to look like that. There's something that caught my attention over the last year. There's this effect, the Osborne effect. It's the, it, it comes from the computer age. And it's this guy, Osborne, who was a, a computer maker in, in Britain, actually, in the early 1980s. Of course, we don't know about him now because he was, he was uh, destroyed by the effect that now has his, his name. And, and, and that's that he made desktop computers and they really caught on, uh, and it, it was the Osborne one. And, and then he announced, Hey, next fall, I'm going to have the Osborne two and wait till you see, you like this one, wait till you see that one. Sales of the Osborne one stopped. So, so he, he, by the time the Osborne two was supposed to come out, uh, yeah, he was out of business. And so, and, and so what it's, it's, is that in anticipation of technological shifts, consumers anticipating that their taste can completely change, right? And so what if there's a critical mass of, of belief among consumers that the internal combustion vehicle is obsolete or is it's going to be obsolete in the next two or three years. And the value in their car is going to plunge or vanish, evaporate. Then you get a massive shift, right? People dumping these cars, right? And uh, this is something that could especially happen if you get affordable electric cars and not necessarily level five, but maybe level 3.5 autonomous driving, like real capability, right? So people feel like, like it's a safety issue. Then, then you get moms, right? Moms in the United States are the chief deciders what car gets bought, right? They won't put their kids into a car that doesn't have 3.5 autonomous driving. You could have this Osborne effect. So I'm going to, uh, in 2021, I'm going to forecast that in 2030, we have had the Osborne effect. These other things, we've shifted to iron, so prices are good. We've gone, we've gotten on average to 3.5 level autonomous driving. We had the Osborne effect and, and, and there's a massive consumer demand for these, for these vehicles. There I go. That's it. Fantastic. Wonderful. And would you be writing a book about that or anything else anytime soon that we should know about? Well, you, you know, writers, I, 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 you know, I'm superstitious. I don't really talk about in advance what, what I'm writing, I, but it'll be exciting. Very well, ex I'm sure it will. And we will be the first ones lining up to get it. Thank you so much, Steve, for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. We could go on and on, but we really appreciate your time. And, and it was fantastic having you on. It was fun. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. And 2030 is just around the corner. We will pick your brain way before that. We will see you. I'll see you then. Thank you. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks for listening. Climate Talk is produced by Spark Network. You can listen to Climate Talk on Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your shows. To find out more about us, visit us at iClima.Earth. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. See you next week.